I think there may be more and more every week. It's getting to be a big group. You want to take out your sermon outline. It says the power of the Lord on it. Well, we're in Exodus 14, and uh, so uh, we, we still have a long way to go, but we have hit the high point of the Exodus story uh, today, and so this is the climactic scene uh, that basically sets the stage for the next thousand years of Israelite history. So it's a long passage. Uh, most people know a part of it, but not the whole thing. So I'm actually going to focus more on the parts that you don't know and a little bit less on the parts that you do know. And, uh, and I'm going to start in a completely different place. So it should be interesting. Uh, we'll read it as we go through because it's kind of long. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we desperately need it. We need to be reminded of God's greatness. We need to be reminded of the glory of God. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just history, but it's a redemption story. And we need a redemption story. Thank you for this grand display of the redemption of your people, a foreshadowing of the redemption to come in our Lord Jesus. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. What do these less familiar names have in common? W.C. Handy, Ma Rainey, Robert Johnson, Bessie Smith, and Son House. Any non-musicians know those names? They were later followed by some more familiar names. Billie Holiday, Etta James, Muddy Waters, and B.B. King. What do they all have in common? They all sang the blues. They all found their origins in the Mississippi Delta. They found their roots in slavery and the slave story of untold suffering and in the sequel, the story of Jim Crow. And they found their roots in the old Negro spirituals that grew out of the slave plantations of the American South. The Negro spirituals, for the most part, were generally Christian songs sung uh, and created by African slaves in the United States. They're originally an oral tradition that imparted Christian values while describing the hardships of slavery. This historic group of uniquely American songs is now recognized as a distinct genre of music. Now, when those spirituals went to church on Sunday morning, for the most part, they gave birth to a form of music we know of as gospel music. But when the spirituals got loose at the juke joint on Saturday night, 
they gave birth to a form of music we know of as the blues. And when the gospel and the blues got together, they gave us a third genre of music known as rhythm and blues. Much of the older country and western music had its roots in the gospel and in blues, as does jazz. And of course, when you take gospel and blues and jazz and R&B and you roll them all together and hand them to white boys with guitars, you get rock and roll. And those white boys were found in Memphis, Tennessee by Sam Phillips and Sun Studios, and they had names like Elvis. And Johnny and Jerry Lee and Roy. The Rolling Stones took their name from a Muddy Waters song, and Eric Clapton says he owes everything to Robert Johnson. So who were all these people, these blues artists? Well, W.C. Handy is the father of the blues. You can go to his museum on Beale Street in, in uh, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and there you'll be greeted by a lengthy exhibit of the slave experience. And if W.C. Handy was the father of the blues, then Ma Rainey was the mother of the blues. Her favorite character in the Bible was Naomi. She said Naomi shows up in all of her music. Their misbehaving child of the blues was Robert Johnson. And by misbehaving, I mean he died three different deaths at the hands of three different men who were mad at him for messing around with three different women and today he is buried in three different graves. You can pick your story. But then Robert Johnson's blues riffs. He's the, really the first one who really was credited with flattening the third and seventh notes to create that distinctive blues sound, not technically known as a minor well, his blues wrists were transplanted to Chicago and transposed from his old beat-up acoustic guitar to a new electric one by the prince of the blues, none other than McKinley Morganfield. McKinley grew up on the massive Stovall Plantation in Clarksdale, Mississippi. But because of his inability to steer clear of the creeks near his family home, he got tagged with the nickname Muddy Waters. And Muddy Waters became the primary musical influence on none other than Johnny Cash, Keith Richard, and Eric Clapton. Muddy was followed by the king of the blues, the legendary Beale Street Blues Boy, which was later shortened to Blues Boy, which was later shortened to B.B. And that's how Riley King who crashed American music with a distinctive style played on a succession of Gibson E355 guitars, all named Lucille. But the common link here is the blues and the spirituals they came out of and the musical expression of suffering they provided and the hope they looked forward to. Beginning with slavery, lasting through the Jim Crow era, continuing through the whole civil rights movement and on into the racial debates of today. One of the most common elements running through blues music uh, that defined and in some ways created the music of today is the identification of oppressed people with Moses and the Exodus. 
through the spirituals first and the blues later, the people of the Mississippi Delta had become one with the grand story of redemption in Exodus. And the grand story of redemption in Exodus hits its climax with the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. This dramatic story of the crossing of the Red Sea has stood on its own for thousands of years. In Jewish history, the Exodus is paramount. It's the high tide, so to speak, of God's power moving across the ocean of Israel's corporate history. Their crossing of the Red Sea, escaping from the uh, clutches of Pharaoh's army, is a pivotal event, a defining moment. The crossing of the Red Sea is to Jews what Easter is to Christians. And it's this defining moment that we're going to look at today in Exodus 14. And we're going to start with a change of course. A change of course. That's the first blank there in your outlines. Starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-he-rot, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So here Israel comes to a point where everything seems to fall apart. Last week we saw they were at a high water mark, boldly coming out of Egypt, confidently uh, marching for the promised land. And now they're at a low ebb. The pieces of God's plan seem to be unraveling. And Israel feels exposed to this unthinkable threat. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Have you at, at one point felt as you understood God's purpose for you and then suddenly you experienced a string of setbacks and disappointments that made you wonder whether you could go on and even whether the sun would rise again? Have you ever been so discouraged by a turn of events that you were tempted to question God? And maybe you have questioned God. Maybe you've lashed out at his ministers. Well, probably not you, but some have, you know, other people. Have you ever found in yourself a growing bitterness and cynicism and distrust and anger enveloping your life? Maybe you just feel bad. Either way, you're ready Now, you can sing the blues if you're traveling by Greyhound, but not by Delta. Driving Chevys, Fords, uh, broken-down trucks, and the occasional old Cadillac qualifies, but no Volvos, no BMWs. The blues can be found in a jailhouse, a morgue, a back road, a back room with an empty bed, or the bottom of an empty bottle, but not at Nordstrom's, or an art gallery, or the winery, or at a golf club. Most of all, the blues is found on an empty road, a long trail going down, a desert path leading to a point of no return and a place of no escape. 
And if you've ever been there, then this passage is for you. Because that's where the Israelites find themselves today. From the highs of their glorious departure, they have plummeted to the depths of despair. And Moses recounts it blow by blow. And we need to learn from it. We see here first in verses 1 through 4 a change of course commanded by God. They've, they've chosen an escape route with the people's needs in mind. We saw that last week. And, and now God is weaving a web of providence that will display his glory and the destruction of his enemies. But the people aren't aware of that. He's chosen an escape route, but now God commands this unexpected turn. And this change, of course, begins with a word from the Lord. He lets Moses know what's going on. He lets Moses in on the plan. But as far as we know, Moses doesn't have the opportunity to tell the people what the plan is, only that they should prepare to see God do something. In verse 2, the Israelites are commanded to turn back, to change course, to take a different direction, and camp in an extremely vulnerable position. Now, if anybody here has had Military History 101, and you see verse 2, you're thinking, no, no, don't camp there. That's the wrong way. That's a bad place. You're trapped on the one side by the Egyptian border cities, and watchtowers, and uh, on the other side by the sea. You have no place to go. That is not the place to be. And yet that's precisely where the Lord tells Moses to take Israel. To a place of no escape. And then in verse 3, Moses tells, uh, God tells Moses what he's up to. He wants Pharaoh to think two things. He wants Pharaoh to think that Israel is lost, wandering aimlessly. And he wants Pharaoh to think Israel is trapped. The problem is Israel thinks both of those things too. But God wants Pharaoh to think those things. He wants to use this to harden Pharaoh's heart and entice him to his own destruction. He has a grander purpose. That purpose is revealed in verse 4. God intends to do this not just to free Israel but for the grander uh, reason for the display of his own glory. He plans to use Pharaoh and his army as instruments of his glory so that all the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, all the way back to Exodus 5. You remember way back then, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, now we've come to this point, and God's saying, Pharaoh, you are going to know who I am. Your people are going to know who I am. The world is going to know who I am. The people of Israel are the beneficiaries of God's mercy, but they're caught up in a much bigger story, a much grander plan than simply their own liberation. The story of Exodus is a story of redemption, and it's all about revealing the glory of God. He has a purpose of displaying his glory and revealing himself as the Lord. You know, 
For the Israelite people, though, this situation has just gotten very real. Because the people inside of this situation are in a complete and total panic. They see everything unraveling. They see impending doom. Not just from the outside, but right there. Now, from the distance of the future and the benefit of God's revelation and the benefit of God's explanations to Moses, you know, we have an entirely different viewpoint. We're standing here watching what's happening, and we can say, ah, the Lord is drawing the Egyptians into a trap. They have no idea what they're walking into. Their pride's going to be their destruction. But that's not Israel's attitude. They have no idea what's going on. You need to understand Israel's in an entirely different place than we're in. So we need to be careful about judging their response. Because how often have we been untrusting in the midst of our own difficulties? From our viewpoint, we know that God has a plan, and that plan is about God's glory. The liberation of Israel is a side benefit. They don't know any of that. So we start with this, in their view, terrible change of course. And then we see a change of mind, verses 5 through 9, a change of mind. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. They said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea. By Piha he wrote in front of Baal, you should remember those names. Those are the Egyptian border cities. Once you go past them, you're in the wilderness. Those are the last outposts for Egypt, so to speak. So now we see here not only a change of course, but a change of mind. Having released the Israelites from captivity, Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them. So in verse 5, the whole scene switches. You know, it's like the movies. You've been watching the camp of Israel, and you see this encounter between God and Moses, and now it's, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And you go back to the royal court of Egypt, and this discussion is going on. Basically, Pharaoh's looking at all of his officers and his advisors, and he's saying, what have we done? We've just let 600,000 able-bodied men who are cheap labor leave the country. <coughs> We must have been out of our minds. What are we going to do about this? And it says they have a change of mind. So when the report of the exodus of Israel is given to Pharaoh, once again, changes his mind. And it's not that he hasn't done this before. He has repeatedly changed his mind during the plagues. If you remember, he would say, stop the plague and I'll let you go. And the plague stops. And he says, oh, it stopped. No, you can't go. That's a really quick summary. But he does that five times. Twice in Exodus 8, he does an 8, 9, uh, 10, 11, 14. He's practiced at changing his mind. 
And so Pharaoh mobilizes his chariot cavalry and his army, verses 6 and 7. And those verses make clear this isn't just some sort of small desert operation. This is the bulk of the forces of the most powerful army on earth being marshaled against the people that don't know how to shoot a bow and arrow. It ought to be a slam dunk. It ought to be 52 to nothing. But in verse 8, it's made clear that God is acting here. It may look like Pharaoh's idea. It may look like Pharaoh's holding all the cards, but it's God's plan. God is, as usual, clearly behind it all and in control of it all. And so when Pharaoh gives chase, you realize Pharaoh is going right where the Lord wants him to go. And in verse 9, the Egyptians catch up with the Israelites. They come within sight of the Israelite camp near the place where God had told Israel to stop. And it seems like an utter disaster for Israel and a godsend for Egypt. And yet God's plan is working out just as he said. God is using the changing of Pharaoh's mind and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and enticing him into conflict for the very purpose of revealing his glory. However, Pharaoh's change of mind leads to a very real, very scary panic attack on the part of the Israelites. And we see they have a change of heart. They have a change of heart, beginning at verse 10. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So now the scene shifts again. We turn back to the people of God. They're in the camp. They've caught sight of the chariots uh, coming after them, making their way towards them. And Israel catches sight of their pursuers, and their confidence falls completely apart. They panic and cry out to the Lord. There is a total change of heart. And they turn on Moses. Having trusted God, now in the face of danger, the Israelites fall apart, they lose faith, and they blame Moses. It won't be the first time. It won't be the last time. All the way back in Exodus 5, you remember what happened? Moses had sought to bring about the liberation of Israel, which resulted in greater oppression. And they turned on Moses and said, look what you've done. Look what you've gotten us. More oppression. Great. Why don't you leave us alone? And they're saying the same thing now. They grumble again against Moses. But now they're asking biting questions. It's actually full of satire. They say, Moses, have you brought us in the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Now, graves in Egypt are like politicians in Washington. There are plenty of graves in Egypt. The pyramids are graves. 
Egypt's been building graves for years. Egypt is grave central. If you wanted a grave, Egypt was where to have one. And the people asked Moses, did you bring us out here because there's not enough graves in Israel in Egypt? It's bitter satire. And it stinks, but it really gets to the crux uh, of the matter of the Exodus. However, unwittingly, the real question is, why have you brought us here? What are we doing? Why are we here? And God answers them. And he says, I've brought you here to see my glory. I haven't brought you here for your comfort. I haven't brought you here because it's easy. I haven't brought you here because it's not going to demand every ounce of trust that you have. I've brought you here to see my glory. Then we look at verses 13 and 14. In the face of this impending disaster, Moses announces Israel is about to learn something really big. They're thinking of Pharaoh's intentions and plans a lot more than they're thinking about God's intentions. Let me stop and defend the Israelites again. You have to remember, they've been slaves for 430 years. The only thing they've known in their entire experience is Pharaoh's intentions and plans. And so there's no wonder they're consumed with what is he going to do to us now. They have the mindset of slaves. They've forgotten how to hope. They saw a dark cloud behind every silver lining. They're confirmed pessimists. And then you have this remarkable word from Moses. He says, I demand that you stand there and do nothing. I mean, there's two million slaves in the desert. Come on, Moses, what are we going to do? Egyptian army, those are bad guys. We need a plan. Stand there. Big confidence booster, that is. Watch. Thank you very much. You've been slaves for 430 years. You've been serving a tyrant who's abused you. He sucked the life out of you. He's used you. God has now set you free. He's redeemed you. He's more sovereign than Pharaoh ever was. And God says, here's my command for you, Israel. Do absolutely nothing. I'm going to take care of this. I got this. Now look at three things that Moses says. First he says, do not fear. How often does God visit and the first words out of his mouth are do not fear? The Puritans used to put it this way, fear God and you have nothing else to fear. And God's going to show them today he's the only thing worth fearing. Second, Moses says, stand where you are and watch. That's what he means when it says, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand right where you are, get ready not to fight, not to defend, not to deflect, not to run, not to maneuver, but just watch. Stand right where you are and watch. And finally, look at the end, verse 14. The Lord will fight uh, for you and you have only to be silent. That's the third thing. Do nothing, say nothing. God is going to handle this. You're going to contribute nothing. You see, their perspective on this is entirely different from ours. 
We're preparing to see some grand thing that God's going to do. And it is going to be grand. They're preparing for doom and destruction. And when you're working in situations where you have no promise that you're going to come out okay, isn't it your tendency to expect impending doom? We all go there. If you've had teenagers who drive and they don't come home on time, what's your first thought? Oh my God, they're lying dead in a ditch somewhere by the side of the road and I'm here and I can't help them. And now they just lost track of time and they roll in 15 minutes later. And so you can't wait to hug them and then you want to slap them because you are like this. Not that I'm speaking from experience. Multiple times. Um, when we don't know what's going on, when uncertainty is huge, it's our tendency to question God, to immediately question God. We go to worst case scenario, we think that God's not there. And Moses tells them, you have one job. Stand there, do nothing, and watch God. That's what you're going to do. And yes, it's grand. And now the focus shifts from Pharaoh to God. And we have a change of power. A change of power. Starting at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. This is the longest part. This is the defining part for Israel. It's long, but this piece means more to Israel than anything else in their history from, for the next thousand years. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. One side of the cloud is Egyptians in darkness. The other side of the cloud is Israelites in light. The light versus darkness imagery isn't a coincidence. It's not a mistake. It's put there very intentionally. And it said, starting verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. almost want to just stop there and pray but I'm not going to. See, the people began to grumble against the Lord and to grumble against Moses. And it's in that context that we come to this passage, which takes us to this climactic scene of God's victory over the Egyptians. From the beginning of the story, God's been saying a number of things. He's been saying he's going to make it known that he is the Lord, both to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. He's making it clear that the heart of Pharaoh is in his hand. He's the one who controls the destiny of Pharaoh. Although Pharaoh may be considered a god in Egypt, he is no match for the one true God, the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of the heavens and the earth. All these things are going to coalesce in this one passage. It's as if 430 years of frustration break free in Exodus 14. God brings forth the display of his power and his judgment and his salvation. We start here in verse 15. Redemption is now. Waiting is over. The time has come. The battle is beginning. The time of redemption is now, but also the time of faith. And God comes to Moses and says something I think is unique in all the scriptures. Notice his words. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? amazing. The children of Israel, surrounded by Egyptians on one side, the sea on the other, begin to cry out to God for help. In his response, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. God's telling Moses, this is not the time for prayer. This is the time for action. I've already answered the prayer and I'm getting ready to show you. So your business right now is faith, and your business right now is to go forward. The Lord says, verse 16, Lift up your staff, stretch it out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. You see what the Lord's done here. In the first half of Exodus 14, God has put him in a condition of maximum stress, maximum anxiety, and in precisely that moment, redemption comes. God is going to get glory for himself and he's going to show grace to his people by telling them ahead of time what he's about to do to their enemies and then he does it. The very point of the story is there's no way to explain what happens unless the sovereign God, the creator and redeemer, is the one who intervenes in an extraordinary way. There is nothing like Exodus in all the rest of the Old Testament. Over and over again, 
This is the point to which the psalmist goes back to. This is the point that the prophets go back to, the historians go back to, the poets go back to. This quintessential Old Testament representation of God coming to rescue his people. And it's precisely the inability of his people to help themselves that serves to do what? To exalt God's grace and to exalt God's glory. Remember, they contribute nothing. And once again, God shows his sovereignty by emphasizing he's going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. He even tells you why. Why is he going to harden the heart of Pharaoh? Why is he going to draw Pharaoh into the bowels of the Red Sea? Because he's going to display his glory. He's going to get honor from Pharaoh. He's going to get honor from his army. He's going to get honor from his chariots. He's going to get honor from Egypt. God gets glory for himself and shows grace to his people. And so here the command is to go forward. It's a command to exercise faith because there's this big sea in front of them. But the author of Hebrews knows that, and that's why he says in Hebrews 11, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. It's an amazing moment when God says to Moses, okay, Moses, lead them forward. And Moses looks out, and there's this big sea in front of him. And God says, go forward. And by faith, the people of God believe God, they believe God's word, they believe God's sovereignty, and they start walking. Look at verse 19, 19 and 20. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So here God gets glory and shows grace to his people, by his protection. His people are trapped. They're basically in a triangle. There's mountains, wilderness, one side. You can't go up. There's sea on one side, and there's Egyptian army, you know, sort of at the bottom of the triangle. You got nowhere to go. The armies are upon them. The people are trapped. And now the pillar of cloud that's been leading them and guiding them circles around to the back of the camp and plants themselves between the Egyptians and the Israelites, and God himself becomes their protection. The children of Israel know the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire are the source of their protection. They're visible representations of the presence of God, identified here as the angel of God. And now the angel of God moves around the camp. It's not this impersonal pillar moves around. It's the action of God directly intervening for his people, and he places himself in between. He interposes himself in between them and their enemies. It's not a great picture of God's protection. Right at your moment of greatest need, he plants himself in between you and the enemy of your soul. But you know there's a greater enemy that God has interposed himself in between. The enemy of your soul is sin. And the consequences of sin is judgment. And one day on the cross, God interposed himself between his judgment and your sinful soul with his son and took the punishment that you deserve so that you might become the righteousness of God. 
And so now we have seen God interpose himself for us, even as he did for the children of Israel. So now we get to the parting of the Red Sea, finally. But remember, as you get to the parting of the Red Sea, anybody remember what happened back in Genesis 1 when God was creating the world? What did he do? He separated the sea from the dry land. Now look what God's doing in redemption. He's separating the sea and making dry land for his people to walk through. We're seeing a new creation in God's redemption. Moses is deliberately going back to what God did in creation and showing us how in redemption, God's about the business of repairing that which was marred and bringing about a new creation in the very work of redemption. So Moses stretches out his hand, told in verse 21, the Lord sends an east wind. It's very interesting, he identifies it as an east wind. Where's Israel? They're on the west bank of the Red Sea. Where does the wind come from? It's an east wind. They have to stand there most of the night and watch the sea part from the other side. God demands this exercise of faith. Watch it unfold. Look over your shoulder. Look who's behind you. Look who's standing in between. Watch me part the waters from the other side. And when the time comes, then you can go through on dry land. So once again, God shows his glory and his grace through the parting of the Red Sea. None of the Israelites could have said that they had did anything, that they had anything to do with this. There was nothing to earn their deliverance. God had put them at a point where literally nothing they could contribute to their own salvation. They simply had to believe and go forward. And finally, you can see God get glory for himself and give grace to his people by the pursuit of the Egyptians. As soon as the sea is open and the cloud moves back to the front, the Egyptians are permitted to resume their pursuit. They head straight down into the sea. And sometime there it says the first watch, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. God looks down and says, now I'm going to deal with the Egyptians. And he turns to Moses and says, Moses, bring the water back. Do you hear the allusion there to the flood of Noah? Moses and Israel are spared like Noah and his family. And suddenly the judgment of God is unleashed upon the Egyptians as the water swallows them up and consumes them whole. God has brought forth judgment. And God has shown his glory in the destruction of the Egyptians. And then last, verses 30 and 31, he manifests his glory and shows his grace by this display of great power. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore, and Israel saw the great power of the Lord, and they have two responses. They fear God, and they believe God. And when you've seen the salvation of the Lord, it always produces holy awe and faith. Let's finish where we started with music. Back to the blues, back to the spiritual. As I said before, the people of the Mississippi Delta had become one with the grand story of redemption in Exodus. They had appropriated it so often 
that it had become their story. The blues artist also appropriated the themes of bondage seen as sin and set it against hope seen as redemption. They learned from a culture that was deeply theological and they absorbed the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. And much of the music follows the road from sin to redemption. To be sure, sometimes the blues artists got stuck in sin and wandered off the road to redemption. But the gospel story was always there. And if you listen closely, you can hear it. They were lost in sin and bondage like Israel in the desert. But their experience mirrored the experience of this sacred book, a book about slavery's children. They knew the hope that pointed them home, and they knew the exodus was the journey that would get them there. And the Bible talked to them because in its pages, they heard their own story. Exodus gave voice both to their nightmares, the bitter song of slavery, and to their dream, the hopeful note of redemption and the promise of freedom. Exodus tells the story of an oppressed people, the ancient Israelites, which was heard loudly and clearly by another oppressed people, enslaved Africans. Enslaved Israelites and enslaved Africans, two communities in a different place and a different time, found a connection and a common experience. And they adopted the same method of grief, lament, set to music. And that's why the old spiritual, O Mary, Oh, Mary, don't you weep, referring to Lazarus' sister weeping over his death in John 11. Tells us, Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. Then the all-important third line, Pharaoh's army got drowned. And the spiritual Oh, Mary links links the, the Christ of the resurrection with the God of the Exodus. Mary need not weep because the new Moses has brought about a new exodus with the promise of new life to come. Israel will not be abandoned in the land of Egypt if Pharaoh's slaves, but instead will be brought into freedom. And so too, we will not be abandoned in death, but we will be brought into new life. The cross is not the end of God's drama of salvation. Death does not have the last word. The exodus and the resurrection are both freedom from bondage, slavery in one case, sin in the other, and the spirituals read these events seamlessly. They bring together the Exodus story and the Gospel story over and over and over. I read about nine spirituals yesterday, and they all do this. You can't conceive of a more cataclysmic, unilateral depiction of God in his grace, saving his people, than the Exodus. Except for one thing. And that's the Savior of the world on a tree at Golgotha, vanquishing the forces of death and hell on your behalf. And is that picture emblazoned in your mind so that there is nothing that you fear Or do you still need to learn the lesson that the Israelites are going to learn on this day? The lesson of Exodus is not just to save us, but to reveal the glory of God by saving us. That's why God saves us, to reveal his glory to us. He doesn't promise us that he's not going to take us into the wilderness 
and put our backs to the sea and bring the Egyptians. He promises when he redeems us to show us his glory. And that's what he's going to do. And in return, he asks that you believe him. Think about that. Take a moment, a moment to, to do that. And then I'll close and then we'll see. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We can hardly do justice to the glory of your redeeming work, to the majesty of this redemption story. But we ask, O oh Lord, that we would have eyes of faith, that we would see the salvation of the Lord and praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus, as well as longing to see the earth filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. People of this land and people of that land knew one thing, that God was their Redeemer. And they had hope in his story of redemption. The question for us today is, do we have that same hope? Hear God's blessing from the end of this great redemption story in Exodus. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God bless you. We'll see you next week.